All right, what's going on, guys? So today I'm joined by Bill Campbell. So I'm really excited because we're going to be talking all about supplementation for strength and physique. So uh, before we get into it, as always, if you like the podcast, make sure you smash the subscribe button and turn on notifications so you can get notified every time a new episode drops, which is every single Wednesday. So Bill, thanks so much for jumping on, man. Really excited to have you here. Can you just give a little bit of a background of your education and kind of what you're doing right now with your work for those people who maybe aren't familiar with you? Yeah, sure. My initial degree was in a different field. My, I have a, an undergraduate degree in marketing, and that was an okay portion of my life. It wasn't what I was passionate about. I used to sell bug killer and weed killer after that, getting that degree, and I loved bodybuilding at that time. I loved like sports nutrition, dietary supplements and training. So I, in my early twenties, I thought maybe I should do something that I actually enjoy. So I made the, the decision to change careers. It took me a long time because I didn't have any science classes. So, uh, 28 years old went, got, had enough prerequisites by that point to start a master's program in exercise physiology. Then I got a PhD at, in exercise, nutrition, and preventive health. That was uh, at Baylor University. And I graduated from there, started working at the University of South Florida. That was now 14 years ago. And I direct the Performance and Physique Enhancement Laboratory, where we have two different research focuses. One is sports nutrition, per, um, performance enhancement, pretty much on the spectrum of resistance training. Uh, I don't really do any endurance training studies. And then the other side is physique enhancement, where we're trying to learn the best diets, the best exercise programs, supplements to maximize fat loss, but maintain or even increase muscle mass. That's awesome. And so obviously this is a very, very pertinent to what we're going to be discussing today, since we are going to be talking a lot about supplementation for body composition and, uh, and, and strength athletes. So first I wanted to kind of ground the, the discussion in a little bit, uh, create some operational definitions. So what specifically leads to the classification of a supplement as a supplement? So for instance, like, you know, whey protein is technically like a, a food source, but that's also considered a, a supplement. And then there's all sorts of different, like, I guess, classifications and definitions. So can you give a little bit more insight into how something falls into the classification of supplement? Yeah, and I'll give this just from my first things that pop into my head, probably not the technical definitions of, of what the, in this country, the FDA would define as a supplement. So to me, a supplement is any ingredient that's not a whole food source. So again, practically, do I buy it off of a shelf? Do, uh, is it extracted from some other plant, uh, some other entity? in supplemental form. So that's, that's my practical definition. And again, I know that there's some technical definition of what dietary supplements are, but that, that is how I look at it. And it is, it is, um, you made a great analogy, whey protein, it's a macronutrient, but it's also a supplement. So in milk, milk has what, eight grams of protein per serving, about two grams of that is whey protein. I wouldn't consider that a supplement. I would consider that a whole food source. But when I buy my tub of whey protein, it is now supplemented because it's been ex extracted. Right. Okay. And as far as, I guess we can just kind of constrain the discussion to North America. Um, what kind of regulations are in place 
to ensure quality control. Uh, the ingredients are actually that are listed are actually in the supplement as dosed and as, as listed and as well as just even like safety measures and, and cross-contamination prevention mechanisms or measurements, things like that. Yeah. And I'm going to, I need to uh, start by saying I'm a little outside my expertise here, but I do have some knowledge in this area. Um, there is this false belief that in North America, that the dietary supplement industry is un, that it is not regulated, that it's unregulated. And that is not true. It is regulated. It's regulated by the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission. I think that's what that acronym is, which is, an, which is underneath the FDA. So it is regulated. The issue is there's not enough regulators to adequately be on, be aware of all of the dietary supplements. So it's kind of like this, the, the analogy that I give my students, is it against the law to, to, to not stop at a stop sign? Yes. Does everybody get arrested that runs through a stop sign? No, because there's only so many police that can monitor the you know millions of stop signs that are in in the in the country so it's kind of the same thing with dietary supplements they are regulated but a lot of things get don't don't get observed or don't get the attention that they may need simply because of the size of the market so hopefully that helps yeah no it, it definitely does and i mean there's there's definitely a lot of back and forth i I don't know. I, I kind of sometimes find that I flop a little bit, but I, I tend to probably have a stance that's a little bit more libertarian where I don't necessarily agree that regulatory bodies are necessary in most cases. Because even though in some circumstances they probably do prevent people, I don't believe that on the whole, there's a whole lot of good evidence to suggest that they would perform any better or prevent or save people more than just the marketplace would on its own, you know? And, and I mean, I know that's kind of contentious and people have their own views on that, but that's just kind of where I stand on things. And so, but I, I don't know, I guess it's neither here nor there. Um, well, I'll tell you where it is kind of cool though, given your background that you've lived all over the world, you've seen, you've seen probably tons of regulation. You've seen a lack of regulation. So you actually have a perspective that, that most people in the world don't have. So I would, yeah, I, I, I really appreciate your perspective on that. And, and, and I, I would say I agree with you, but even if I didn't agree with you, you still have that perspective <laughs> that I don't have that I would respect even if we disagree. Yeah, that's fair. Um, so I guess to, I just kind of want to highlight before we kind of get into this stuff, because I know people can, you know, once they start doing a bit of a deep dive in supplementation, they end up getting a little bit obsessive and they kind of lose sight of the big picture. And that's sort of the magnitude of benefit that comes from supplementation. So I just kind of wanted you to maybe speak on that, like the, how much of an impact do supplements have outside of obviously PEDs on things like performance and body composition, just in like the hierarchy of, of priorities that you really need to focus on. So people don't sort of lose, lose sight of, of the actual priorities when they're trying to optimize their diet. Yeah, so, so you use the acronym PEDs just to make sure everybody's on the same page. PED, performance enhancing drugs. So that would be something that you can't legally purchase over the counter. You would have to get it prescribed to you by a physician. So we're talking mainly steroids, 
um, and certain drugs. So supplements, we're, we're, we're playing in the sandbox of you can buy them anywhere. And, and your question was, what's without losing the forest for the trees, I guess. Now, I'll, I'll share what supplements I take, and it's not very many. But my personal filtering process is, it, is it effective? Does this work? One. And then the second one, is it safe? If it passes those two tests, then I just go to, is it, is it effective enough that I want to spend my money on it? And sometimes the answer is no. Sometimes the answer is yes. And I would even say, not proud of this, but when, when I was younger, I didn't, that second filter wasn't very, very thick. The safety measure, like I, I took a lot. Uh, I, I'll tell you a funny story real quick. The, the first time I ever took ephedrine, have you ever taken ephedrine? No, I haven't. Are you familiar with what ephedrine is? I, I am, but I don't know a whole lot about it. I, I know this is like such a huge gap and people always make fun of me because like I know a fair bit about nutrition and training, but then they'll be like, oh, you know, what should I take for my drugs? And I'm like, honestly, I have zero idea when it comes to drugs. It's just never something I've really looked into that much. Well, ephedrine is a fat burning supplement that you used to be able to buy over the counter. And I remember just thinking, well, the, the instructions say take four pills. This was a twin lab was the name of the company. And I took eight. I'm like, well, eight's going to be better than four. And I was thinking, fat burners don't really work. <laughs> and oh my gosh, I'll never forget the, the experience that I had from taking ephedrine. And it was, and there was also caffeine with it as well, I believe. But it, my, my job at the time was to stock shelves with like four gallon boxes of, of weed killer and bug killer. And normally I would, it would, you know, I'd struggle a little bit to lift four gallons over my head. It wasn't easy, but that day, cause I took that, you know, probably around lunchtime, I was like spinning these boxes on one finger over my head, throwing it behind my back. It was, I've never taken cocaine, but I have to think that's how you must feel on cocaine. <laughs> I remember getting home and laying on my couch and my heart was just pounding. And I remember literally thinking, I'm going to die tonight. Like, should I call the ambulance? Um, so that's when I learned that ephedrine worked. And that right now, um, I'm not up to speed, but I don't think you can legally purchase it now. I think they took it off the market. But as I've gotten older, again, just to take this back to, does it work? If it does, okay, now is it safe? That Those are kind of my filters right now. Yeah, that's fair. And, um, so, so what are the primary supplements that, that work? And I guess I kind of want to not necessarily focus as much on health and really try and hone the conversation in on performance enhancement or enhancing body composition in particular. So what are some of the primary supplements that do have, you know, a fair bit of research behind them to show their efficacy with regards to strength and physique sports? All right. And when I, Think of uh, performance and physique. I think physique, does it build muscle? And then we have the fat loss category. And then we have performance. So I, I, when I look at supplements, I kind of have the, the, those three categories. Building muscle, losing fat, improving exercise performance. And I, I'm, I'm glad you didn't ask me to include 
supplements that are related to health because I don't know that. That's not an area that I study. Health's important, but it's just not an interest of mine. I'm interested in building muscle, losing fat, and and doing better in the gym. So performance. Um, which one would you want to start with out of out of that those three categories? You can just take your pick, and, and we'll go from there. All right, let's start with muscle building. The 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 gold standard of dietary supplements there is creatine monohydrate. And in fact, it actually checks all three boxes, not as much on the fat loss, but we do have evidence that it does cause fat loss. So creatine monohydrate, let's just look at my filters. Does it work? Absolutely. Is it safe? Absolutely. There's been no other supplement besides caffeine that has been studied as much, and this is in the sports nutrition realm, that has been studied as much as creatine. So creatine builds muscular strength and improves strength, it improves performance, and it improves muscle mass. And an added benefit, it's cheap. So I'm, I'm amazed at the number of people who don't take creatine. If you're in this realm of fitness and you like to lift weights, I don't know why you wouldn't take creatine because um, I can understand if, if you don't have a lot of f money or finances, but it's cheap. It's not, it's one of the cheapest supplements you can get. So yeah. there's the, there's the home run, the king, you know, the, the, the goat, the, the king of the mountain. And like I said, I literally call it the gold standard of dietary supplements because it's work. It works, it's safe and it's not expensive. So, so before we get into any of the other supplements, then can you just uh, differentiate between the benefits of, for instance, like a creatine monohydrate versus like creatine or, or like, I know people talk about like hydrochloride and like different, different types of creatine in particular. And they tout them as like these really, really beneficial uh, supplements when most literature that I've seen anyways says creatine monohydrate is the best. There's not really any additional benefit. Can you kind of speak to that? Yes. Yes. Yes, I can. I, I would never, there is no benefit to anything other than creatine monohydrate. You're just paying a premium on the price for these other novel forms of creatine. Creatine monohydrate is, I mean, it's literally in the high 90 percentiles in terms of its bioavailability. What that means is you take it, you mix it in your drink, your water, your protein shake, whatever, Almost all of that creatine makes it to your blood system. And then most of that, or much of that, depending on what your, your saturation levels are, it will make its way to your skeletal muscle and other tissues. But skeletal muscle is the main tissue that will take in, absorb, and utilize creatine. So any other form, creatine citrate, creatine hydro, whatever, whatever they are, it's going to be hard to outperform creatine monohydrate and there's no evidence that they do. Right. And so just speaking to the actual effects that you mentioned on strength, uh, increased uh, hypertrophy and, and some of the other downstream effects as well. What are some of the mechanisms involved in these adaptive responses to consumption of creatine? Creatine, um, it's kind of like carbohydrate loading for endurance athletes. So if we look at it like this, your muscle cells typically have, let's just say, uh, 60 units of something called creatine phosphate in your muscle cells, 60 units. 
what you'd like to do is get that up to 100 units. And, and 100 units is the most that you can have. It's very difficult to do that through food sources. You would have to eat pounds or kilograms of meat, like beef, fish, on a daily basis. So it's not very practical to increase creatine stores through food alone. But when you supplement creatine monohydrate as a dietary supplement, you can get your creatine levels in muscle from 60 units, this is just an arbitrary number, up to 100 units. And what that does is once creatine goes into the muscle, it will, it will bind to a phosphate group and it forms creatine phosphate. And what that does is that's part of the, what I call the immediate energy system, which is called the phosphagen system. And that's what allows you to, to sprint faster for an extra three seconds or get an extra repetition on a bench press. So anything that's a high intensity activity or something that can cause repeated strength efforts, that's what that system helps you to do. And that's what creatine monohydrate uh, improves or augments those types of activities. So real quick, what, does, what it is not, it is not going to help you run a faster marathon. Is it going to help you lift a a weight that you can normally lift five times, maybe you can lift it six or seven times. If you normally sprint a hundred meters in 10 seconds, maybe you can now sprint it in 9.5 seconds. So anything that's high intensity, creatine, that's where it's going to show its worth. And are there any particular considerations on nutrient timing? So I know that creatine is a loading uh, supplement. And so the benefits are going to be through chronic utilization, but is there any benefit to uh, timing it throughout the day, maybe around your workouts or anything like that that you've seen? I say no, but, but there is one study that I'm aware of that showed a little better outcomes post-workout versus pre-workout. But as you just said, to me, that's irrelevant. You have to take it daily. If you take about five grams a day, three to five grams a day, you need to do that for about 28 days, let's just say one month, and then your muscle cells become saturated. So yes, there's one study, but it becomes irrelevant when you look at the big picture of how you would supplement with this. I'll just, for what it's worth, I, I take my creatine with my breakfast. My breakfast is a protein shake, and I just mix it with my protein shake. Usually it's casein protein with milk. Just mix it with that. Nowhere close to my workout. And that's part of my lifestyle. Like I, I've taken that for years. And if I live to be a hundred years old, I'll be taking it till I'm a hundred years old. Have you seen any research on um, GI distress with creatine consumption close to a workout? Because uh, that's something that I've experienced personally. And I've had a handful of athletes experience. I have heard other things like anecdotally and I've, I've seen some papers that had a, a low uh, low effect size but still kind of noteworthy but I, I was wondering if you've seen any actual literature on GI distress of, of creatine consumption in close proximity to training I've not seen research that's not to say it doesn't exist I'm just saying I'm not aware of it I have heard what you're telling me anecdotally and I'm going to assume that's most often when people use a loading phase where they try to get their muscles saturated within six days. That's where you take about 20 grams per day or 0.3 grams per kilogram of body mass per day. 
but that gets easy to fix. Just like you said, if it, if you're taking that going into your workout and you have that GI distress, the, I think the easy solution is you don't have to load it one and two, take it away from your workout. And maybe that would prevent any type of distress. Awesome. Okay. And um, so, so what would be the next supplement on your list from a hypertrophy standpoint? <sighs> Boy, another one that I take for muscle building purposes is one that's not often thought of as muscle building, but it's fish oil, specifically EPA and DHA. So these are essential fatty acids. I'm aware of four different studies that have um, supplemented in gram doses with essential fatty acids or fish oil in which there was significant increases in muscle mass. Now, not all studies show this, but there's again, four, that's more than one, two, and three. So it starts to, to be a trend. There's even some data to suggest that it increases muscle protein synthesis. So as I think, is this something that I would want to supplement with? The muscle building potential is, it's intriguing to me, but there's also a lot of health benefits. So there, it's uh, brain health, joint health. So I'm taking that from a perspective of, there's definitely some evidence to suggest that it will build muscle. And it clearly is a, or it appears to be, and we can talk about some recent research, but it, it, I believe it also helps with joint integrity, joint health, brain health. So I'm taking it for those reasons as well. And there's also evidence that it lowers your risk for cardiovascular disease. I've been told, I haven't read this study, these studies yet, that recent research is saying, well, they're not, it's not as good as what we once thought for cardiovascular disease. So keep that, in, keep that in mind. But that's another one. That's really the only other supplement that I take that's not protein on a daily basis for muscle building purposes. But again, that one's a little bit more broad for me, muscle building and general health. Right. That's interesting. I, I don't think I've really seen that. Um, I mean, I've seen supplements taken that have like maybe an indirect effect on certain things, but uh, yeah, that's an interesting one. I'll have to kind of look into that. Um, so as far as like um, caffeine goes, Obviously, that would kind of have like an indirect effect because if your performance is enhanced, you might get a slight benefit in hypertrophy or fat loss or whatever. But um, what, what kind of impacts or positive impacts do we see from caffeine on performance, hypertrophy, and uh, even like perceived effort, fatigue, recovery, things like that? Yeah, caffeine is another one of those like creatine in the sense that it's, it's, it's extremely well studied. It works um, it's safe for most people. Now, obviously, too much caffeine, again, if you're going to take that in the grams, it can be deadly, but so can water if you take too much water for that matter. Um, I, I wouldn't put caffeine in a muscle building category. I would never think of it to help build muscle, but I think it's it's probably my number one fat loss ingredient. It It stimulates lipolysis, which is the the making the, it's breaking down the fat cells essentially. So the fat cells have uh, triglycerides, which are fatty acids and a glycerol backbone. You're never going to lose fat or burn fat until you liberate the fatty acids from your fat cells. And caffeine does a very good job of that. 
It also increases your metabolic rate. And over time, that will result in, in fat loss as well. So I think that's probably my number one ingredient for fat loss. But we also have this third category of performance enhancement. And it's incredible there as well. It is very good for endurance athletes. And the, one of the main things that it does is it just lowers your rating of perceived exertion. So it makes exercise that you typically find very difficult or arduous. It makes it not seem as hard. And that's, that's huge. Uh, depending on the study, I mean, I'll just give an approximate estimation. Half the studies show that it improves resistance training performance. Half the studies say it does not, but I don't think you're going to find many that says it makes resistance training performance worse. So it probably can only help. Um, that is a supplement though, as much as I like it as an ingredient, I don't, I don't supplement with it. I don't take pre-workouts. I only because I don't want to, I don't want to be dependent on a pre-workout for, to, to feel like I need it for my workouts to, or to have a good workout. Um, I typically also don't take it for fat loss. And the main reason there is I'm always experimenting with diets and different training things on myself. I'm like a literally a, a human experiment just because that's what I do. And I like to experiment on myself. So I don't like to cloud it with caffeine. I want to know how my diet is doing. I'm going to, I'm going to um, show you, but nobody else can see it. But diet Dr. Pepper, I, I drink one or two of them every day that has, I don't know, maybe 50 or 60 milligrams of caffeine. So I do get it in diet soda. But other than that, I, I don't get it. But it's a great ingredient. Again, my top pick for fat loss and very good for endurance athletes. Mm -hmm. And also, I guess I, I think it's important to note as well that there is a big difference between caffeine and coffee. Uh, you know, with coffee, I've even seen research that shows that the concentrations of the actual caffeine content can vary dramatically based on roasting, based on the bean type, based on a whole host of things. And so um, I think a lot of the times when people take it for an ergogenic effect, which, which would be like a, a performance enhancing effect for your training, um, for those people who don't know what that is. Um, I think you'd probably have a little bit better time from a dosing standpoint, if you're using like caffeine supplements, like caffeine yep. pills or, or, or a powder or whatever it might be. I don't exactly know what type of supplements are on the market. I've never really taken caffeine before um, versus a coffee. Although I know coffee does work for some people. They just like it and they just kind of feel that it gets them a little bit of a, of a boost. Although I would suspect that's probably a little bit more placebo than it is um, the actual caffeine content of the, ca of, of the coffee. But could you give any recommendations on caffeine supplementation to, to get this ergogenic effect? Like what would the dosing be and what would proximity to training be for caffeine consumption? Yeah, the, the dosing is three to six milligrams of caffeine per kilogram of body weight. And for most people, that's going to be around 200 to 300 milligrams. Uh, in terms of exercise, about an hour before, I think that's that's mostly that's pretty effective. Um, I don't remember what the what the plasma peak levels are, but I think an hour before tends to be effective. Uh, it is funny you you mentioned whether you get it in powder form or in pill form. One of my former students, Gavin Rogers, who's just a 
one of the most knowledgeable people about, about supplements. He was telling me, and I haven't verified this, but it's much more difficult to buy caffeine as powder because it's easy to overdose. So if you overdo, if you take more, let's say you take um, a tablespoon rather than a teaspoon, the, the rates of overdosing on caffeine can be quite high. And it's much harder to overdose when you're taking pills when it's a standardized amount. So that's very interesting. Yeah, I feel like that's definitely something that people would probably be inclined to do. At first, they're kind of shaving off those teaspoons. Then, you know, after a week or two, all of a sudden, it's like these massive heaps. <laughs> yeah, or if your kid gets into the bottle again, it's one of those things if it's... Yeah. That can have some drastic consequences if it's overdosed. So, um, but highly effective. Um, yeah. So creatine, just to summarize what we've talked about so far, creatine is my number one supplement for muscle building. Caffeine is my number one supplement for fat loss. Um, that's available over the counter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, awesome. And so, as far as like whey protein supplementation, um, that one's kind of an interesting one because I think there's a lot of, I think a lot of the benefits of whey protein supplementation are more practical in nature. So like I generally don't focus on tons of supplements with, with a lot of my athletes anyways, and that's just my personal preference um, when, when I'm following the diet or when I'm developing like a, a nutrition program for them. I tend to try and emphasize like good quality foods and, and nutrient timing and other things well before we get to supplements. However, I've definitely noticed that a lot of women tend to come in extremely protein deficient and getting them to like eat meats or eat protein rich foods seems to be fairly difficult. And so I, I've definitely found that even just from a like a practical standpoint, giving them a protein shake just to kind of bolster their, their total protein intake is, is very effective. But what kind of effects does protein have just on your physiology from a performance standpoint, from a recovery standpoint? Like why are the requirements the way that they are? Because I know everyone thinks protein, everyone knows that protein is fairly important, but I'm not sure they understand necessarily why. Like they don't necessarily understand the relationship between protein turnover and uh, sorry, protein synthesis and, and protein breakdown and things like that. So can you just kind of elaborate on, on some of those mechanisms? Yes. And before I talk about mechanisms, let me just say, I think it's important to think of protein, at least this is how I teach it to my students. Protein is the, what I call the adaptive nutrient. You don't take protein to fuel your workouts. That's what carbs are for. And that's what fat is for. So going into a workout, if you haven't been eating for, if you haven't eaten for a while, fuel the workout, take carbs, eat fat, have a meal, whatever to fuel your workout. Protein, not a good fuel source. What protein does, it allows your body to adapt to the stimulus of that workout. So it's adaptive. Again, fuel, fuel your workout, have a great workout, stimulate the body. And then once you have the stimulus from the workout, now your goal as a high-performing athlete is to have your body adapt to that stimulus of the workout. That's what protein does. The, the reason that whey protein is kind of the, the top supplemental protein source is it has the most the highest amounts of essential amino acids. 
And those are the amino acids that you have to get from foods because your body doesn't make them. But any animal source, if you look, you know, casein is the other main protein in milk. You have um, eggs, chicken, beef. I even like to say roadkill. Any form of animal protein is going to be high quality. And even vegetable sources, they can be high quality if you get enough of them. You just typically need more because vegetable sources of protein like pea protein, potato protein, corn protein, they, they tend to lack the essential amino acids. So what do we do? We just supplement with more of them. In terms of a mechanism, how, how does it work? Well, protein helps stimulate muscle protein synthesis, and it also helps slow down muscle protein breakdown, which you described the concept of protein turnover. So the more that you are increasing muscle protein synthesis, the greater likelihood that you're actually going to build muscle. And that's also something that you want to do after your workouts because muscle protein breakdown is elevated after working out. So, and, and, and part of that's good, part of that's natural, but you don't want it to be out of control. So protein helps suppress muscle protein breakdown, increase muscle protein synthesis, which not only improves muscle mass, if you're trying to build muscle, it also helps with the recovery aspect. And on that note, not everybody's a bodybuilder or a strength athlete. There are also endurance athletes or CrossFit athletes. We actually, we also have mitochondrial proteins that we need to be able to be aerobically fit. So we have mitochondrial protein turnover as well. And protein supplements also help build the mitochondrial proteins and help with those adaptations. Um, in terms of a practical observation of just just simple protein supplementation if you take somebody who like you said uh, typically a female who tends to undereat and if you simply increase her protein and if she works out with weights she's going to lose fat and she's going to gain muscle i have seen that a lot and in fact we're we're doing a study on that right now in my lab and i'll never forget the the a woman that actually she's my wife now. Um, she was like one of the first people that I experimented this with. And I went to her house and she had, <laughs> it was crazy. She had like pasta in the shelf and some kind of alcoholic beverage in the refrigerator and maybe like ragu. So she had basically no food in her house. And I was like, what, what in the world you left weights? She goes, yeah. And she beautiful. Like I just remember she was um, relatively lean, uh, great shoulders, great glutes, everything course I fell in love with her um but we just <laughs> we just simply uh increased her protein and she, her shoulders got bigger she lost more fat that's the only change no, nothing else so yeah protein is it's it's a it's a pretty amazing out of the three macronutrients it's the one that will change your body composition the fastest yeah i, I actually recently had um i i took on a new client i want to say about a month ago and in the, in the check-in, I have like a, a whole host of things. We talk a little bit about stress, mood, perception of training, um, additional notes. And like we have a nutrition section, sleep section, all, all sorts of different things. And the first thing that I was seeing was she wasn't really filling out her nutrition. And I'd get this feedback like, oh, I'm just, you know, my mood's down. My, you know, I'm training's really hard. It's really a slog, blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, this doesn't make any sense. 
I'm looking at your historical training logs. This is substantially less than what you're used to doing because I'm kind of, you know, slowly building her into it. And I was like, what is going on? And I was like, okay, why don't you fill out your, your nutrition? Because her sleep seemed to be pretty good. And sure enough, she was getting between like 30 and 50 grams of protein per day. And this, this girl's about 100 and 175 pounds, right? She's a very, very strong lifter, uh, very high level actually lifter, and just wasn't getting any protein. I'm like, okay, cool. And so I was just like, all right, I want you to start taking two shakes a day because she had a real problem with eating, right? Uh, like she just would not eat. So I was like, I just want you to take two shakes a day. So just by increasing her intake from like 30 to 50 grams, getting her to about like closer to about 120 to 140 grams on average, all of a sudden her performance just spiked up. And like you said, her body fat percentage just dropped. She got way leaner. And this is over the span of like a month. So like a very short duration too. And, and so it's, it's really incredible how many athletes like who are pretty freaking strong and pretty far ahead just have been going on with like almost no protein. I'm just like, how are you still alive? You know? So it's, it's, it's a lot more prevalent than I think people think and probably a lot more prevalent with women than, than men. But um, it's, it's actually pretty shocking. Exactly. Like what you said, how, how much of a difference protein intake makes when you start to monitor it. And then her mood went up you know, level of perceived exertion went down, like just everything started improving on, on all fronts. So it's, uh, it's definitely really, really one of those important things to monitor. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about nitric oxide and then also nitric oxide precursors, um, like, like citrulline malate and, uh, and different nitrates and things like that. Have you seen any research on that and what sort of impacts they have? Yeah. So my thesis was on the original nitric oxide supplement. So it was 2007. So that's kind of where I started my whole career was on, and that was an arginine-based, arginine alpha ketoglutarate-based supplement. So nitric oxide, it's a gas in the body that when it increases, it dilates blood vessels. And the thought is when you dilate blood vessels, it will cause a greater oxygen supply, a greater nutrient supply to your muscles. So there's the the, the, the mechanism of what nitric oxide does. Um, and the research, at least at that early time, was all focused on arginine. So arginine has a pathway where it's converted to nitric oxide, but it's really not an effective um, precursor to nitric oxide increases, at least arginine is not. Uh, particularly in healthy people. Now, if somebody has diabetes or if they have a compromised cardiovascular system, there is research to suggest that arginine is helpful in those, in those individuals, but not for fit, active, younger, healthy, and let's just say metabolically healthy individuals. So the other, I, the other thing you mentioned was nitrate. So that, again, that can increase nitric oxide levels. Awesome. And, and so as far as like performance, what does the research say as far as like the actual efficacy of using these? Like, do we actually see an enhancement in performance or recovery or, or any other additional benefits of, of uh, supplementing with nitric oxide? Yeah. So again, the goal is let's look at citrulline commonly sold as citrulline malate, that actually does increase nitric oxide levels quite nicely. Citrulline will increase your blood levels of arginine better than taking arginine because arginine gets broken down in the digestive system. 
where citrulline malate does get broken down, but it's one of its uh, metabolites is arginine. So the data on citrulline or citrulline malate, and that, by the way, that naturally is found in high levels in watermelon. That does seem to improve endurance performance, uh, some resistance exercise performance, getting a couple extra reps. So in that, that would be the, if you want to increase nitric oxide level, citrulline is a, is a better path than arginine to do that. And so what would be the dosing of that? And are there any sort of nutrient timing considerations for supplementation as well? Yeah, definitely. The timing would be about within an hour before exercise because it's short acting. Um, we also have beetroot juice. I'm doing, I, I don't have much to say on beetroot juice, but I do know that's another uh, supplement that can improve nitric oxide. I'll know a lot more about that in about a month or two as I finish my research. The, the supplemental ranges for citrulline malate is about, let's just focus on citrulline. It's about four to six grams. That's the effective dosage. So when, what I tell people is if you're looking at a pre-workout, because a lot of pre-workouts will have citrulline in it or citrulline malate, if it's citrulline malate, make sure that it has at least eight grams, because that would typically mean four grams of citrulline, four grams of malate. If it's citrulline by itself, at least four grams, possibly even up to six grams of citrulline. Uh, anything less than that, the research would suggest it's not going to promote an ergogenic effect but at the levels of four to six grams of citrulline, that's where you start to see some performance enhancements. Awesome. And um, I just wanted to, I guess, talk a little bit about vitamin D because vitamin D is kind of one that's been pretty interesting. We have vitamin D like, well, receptors essentially all over the body. And it seems to have uh, a lot of effects, even as like, I don't know, catalysts or, or you know, I, I'm not exactly sure what, I'm not too familiar with the, the, the chemistry aspect of that. Um, but uh, it seems to have a lot of benefits. So can you touch on what vitamin D actually does and how it might impact someone's, not necessarily health, although you can touch on that, but I guess a little bit more on like um, why you might need that to permit proper training, proper function, proper athleticism, things like that. I guess if that makes sense. Yeah. Now I will say that that is a supplement that I have not spent a lot of time researching, but I'll, I'll share what I know. That is one that um, some people, particularly in Northern climates are deficient in. And when you're deficient, if you're a male, you could have lower levels of testosterone production and just even lower levels of performance. If you're not deficient in vitamin D, there's probably no benefit for supplementation. But if you get your levels checked and you are deficient, it's one of those things that you can supplement with to bring up your levels to non-deficient levels. Um, I don't, I get, I have in my fish oil pills because it's a fat, it's a fat soluble vitamin. So it needs to be transported with fat. I actually supplement with vitamin D because I choose to take fish oil that have vitamin D added. So technically I do supplement with vitamin D. But it's, it's not because my, when I've gotten my levels tested in the past, I hadn't been deficient. Um, I'm unfortunately, I don't recall, I, I can't remember the, what effective dosages are. And I would just say, 
if you get your levels tested, it's going to be very individualized anyway. Some people are going to need a lot more to bring their levels up. Other people would need considerably less based on how well their body can metabolize it. Awesome. And as far as uh, performance, hypertrophy, all that stuff, obviously sleep plays a, a really, really critical role. Like even sleep deprivation of one night tends to see deterioration like cognitive performance, reaction time, things like that. And then if chronic, it can have much, much more significant impact on, on performance. Um, and then obviously like for body composition, there are some, some pretty significant impacts on like uh, your endocrine system, um, even like hedonic drive to pursue like calorically dense foods and, and things like that, as well as like hunger hormone signaling. Um, and so I feel like this is kind of one of those adjacent subjects where even though it's not necessarily directly related to performance, kind of like um, we were talking about like uh, protein powder or like hypertrophy or for, for hypertrophy and stuff like that, even though it's not necessarily going to give you a boost, I, I still think that it is a relevant thing to talk about. Um, and so I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, melatonin and what sort of impacts that does have on uh, sleep and quality of sleep, especially for individuals who might struggle with sleep. Cause I know a lot of athletes, especially a lot of athletes that I coach sleep tends to kind of be something that they're always sort of struggling with, even if they're consistent with it, it's, it's quite a bit of work because they're usually fairly busy in, in other areas. And so, um, what does the research say on the efficacy of melatonin? What would the dosages be? And do you need to cycle on and off? And what are some other considerations that you might need to be aware of if you're planning on using uh, melatonin? Yeah. And again, this is going to be one of those supplements because it's not directly related, related to performance and physique. I don't have a large, uh, my own personal library on melatonin is small. So I'm not going to be able to elaborate much on that with, with, without having to doing my research. The one thing I would say just back to sleep is, and again, I've done zero research on sleep. I'm not a sleep researcher, but I'm in contact with people like you who coach athletes and physique athletes and performance athletes. And probably over the last two years, it's been very impressed upon me just the importance of tracking sleep if, if, if overtraining is a consideration, if fat loss is stalling, um, if everything seems to check the boxes, like, Hey, nutrition's good. Training's been, training hasn't gone down, but they're just lacking an improvement in their performance levels or physique improvements. It's oftentimes sleep. That is the, the variable of their life that is out of, out of sorts. And again, I can, mention multiple coaches that I just learned from, again, outside of my area. And they, they, they would suggest that sleep is something that you track consistently as you would your protein intake or as you would your training volume. So that has forced me to appreciate these. And, and you mentioned some research, which I just saw some recently too, just even one night of sleep loss caused a, I think it was like a 24% decrease in muscle protein synthesis from a, from a pre-workout stimulus. So it can be massive. Um, so that's, that's what I've learned about just the importance of sleep from coaches that I respect. And I'm sorry, I can't elaborate on the melatonin aspect. No, no problem at all. Um, 
I, I know that you you have a primary focus on like performance body composition, so it's not a big deal. I just thought I'd throw it out there just in case you did have some some uh, some expertise in the subject. Well, it's funny, um, I, I did a I published a study. I wasn't the primary author, but we published a study on that. I think in two thousand eight. I just don't remember. I it was not effective. In <laughs> yeah. Um, but I'm hesitant to say, and that was, um, we did some leg press performance in that. I'm hesitant to say, yep, it doesn't work because that was only one study. So I'm, I'm not on top of that broad area right. of research. So I don't, I don't want to, um, I don't want to just cherry pick the data, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, no, no problem. And I guess kind of to, we, we are coming up on that hour mark. And so I guess one thing to kind of note to, to wrap things up, we mentioned this, or you mentioned this in the beginning, um, as far as like what your criteria was, right? So you're like, does it work? Is it safe? Is it effective? And I think one really important thing that I just want to stress again, whenever we're talking about supplements, you really have to do kind of like a cost benefit analysis, right? So for instance, if you're taking, I don't know, let's just say hypothetically uh, citrulline malate and the potential benefit for you could be like 0.5% increase in your performance. And it's like, is that worth it? Well, that's not necessarily going to be an objective answer, right? Like, because if you're kind of a weekend warrior, eh, probably not, right? But if you're an elite athlete like Usain Bolt, a 0.5% before, like you're looking for any freaking possible advantage that you might get. And, and so I think it's really important to understand where you fall on that spectrum. Like, are you an elite athlete? Or even if you're not an elite athlete, like, is this something you really, really prioritize and if it is, is it causing you additional stress? Because that's something really important too. Like when we're talking about allostatic load, so not, not to get too far off track, but I mean like looking at like central stress, peripheral stress, emotional, psychological stress, all these things, like are you adding a bunch of nutrient timing and supplementation? And is that causing an additional stress to you, which could be kind of undoing a lot of the benefit that you're getting from these supplements? Is it counterproductive? So I, I think it's really important to understand, like, where do you fall on the spectrum of how important is every percent increase in performance? And then also, what's the cost of doing it? Because there's a financial cost, there's a time cost, there's a, I guess, potentially a psychological cost. If, if you're having to like track macros and things like that, that does, that can take a lot of effort. And if you're doing a bunch of other things, I think it's really important to understand how all of these things cumulatively add up to the overall stress load that you're, that you're taking on. And so I just kind of want to really reiterate that, uh, that it's really important whenever we're talking about supplements and things like that, we're talking about fairly small orders of magnitude of, of benefit, even though they show a very robust training effect, it's still relatively small when you compare that to just general diet or general good training practices or sleep and things like that. So I, I just kind of want to make sure that that's still within that context of supplementation. Supplements are, are great. They can absolutely be enhancing, but just make sure that if you're deciding to take certain supplements, you understand where you fall in that spectrum and what's going to be the best fit for you long-term. Um, so Bill, did you have anything that maybe you wanted to uh, just say to the listeners to, to kind of close out or anything like that? Uh, well, one, I wanted to thank you for thinking highly enough of me to, to want to talk to me for an hour. So thank you for, for the conversation. I don't, I don't rarely get, usually I don't get to talk about supplements the whole time. So this was a nice, uh, nice change. Um, most of my work recently has been, as we discussed a little bit more on fat loss, 
Um, I would add in terms of a fat loss supplement, Yohimbine is one that we didn't discuss, but it's one of those that has, has some evidence to suggest that it works. Uh, Yohimbine is an extract from the Yohimbi bark, which is a tree, an evergreen tree. Um, I think it's Western Africa is where they, is where that tree is, is, um, prevalent. And research would suggest, uh, not all, but some, and one of them was in lean males with resistance training and it did, did help with fat loss. So that would be, you know, caffeine would be up there. Uh, I, I would suggest yohimbine would be another one that you may consider if you wanted to do fat, if you were um, targeting fat loss. Uh, one of the things that can cause anxiety in people who are prone or who are already have anxiety. So you got to be careful if you're an anxious person, that might be then a supplement that you'd want to stay away from. The only other thing that I would mention is uh, if you follow my work, I put everything that I do on Instagram. My, my username is at Bill Campbell PhD. And a lot of what I do there is sports nutrition, uh, talking about different types of supplements, dosages, males versus females, all of that stuff. Awesome. That was actually going to be my second question is where can people find you? So is, is IG the only place that people can find you? Correct. Yes. At least at this point, I, I have awesome. thoughts of the YouTube channel, but not yet. <laughs> it's a big undertaking. People don't understand how much work it takes to, to put out content on a regular basis. Oh yeah. Just, just my Instagram. Um, yeah. Yeah. And you, and then you're doing a podcast yet on top of, a, I don't know how many channels you're on, but just a podcast. That's <laughs> yeah. Well, I've, I've been ex slowly expanding my, uh, my scope over, over the last little while. Cause right now I run my, my own shit basically. And so it's uh it's, it's a lot of work on the production side of things, outsourcing, like trying to get guests and things like that. It can take a long time. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's definitely cool. Actually, I was going to say, um, I love your, your Instagram account and I actually admittedly totally stole your idea. I totally ripped it off your, your true or false posts. I freaking love those. Um, so, so he does these great posts. And if you follow me, you'll notice that I started recently doing these posts where it's like, I'll make a statement and then I'll say true or false. And then I give a little answer in the bottom. I 100% ripped that off of you because I thought it was such a great, uh, kind of tool. Cause my, my, I'd say my Instagram is more educational based than like coaching based, if that makes sense. Uh -huh. Um, but yeah, no, it, he, he's got an absolutely phenomenal Instagram. Uh, I, I, I love checking it out. He's got tons of great content that he puts up there on the regular. So I'd highly recommend going and checking it out. So all that stuff is going to be linked up below. Make sure you give him a follow. Make sure you uh, like this podcast and share it with your friends. Please, please, please. And Bill, thanks again for jumping on the podcast, man. It was great. Yes. Thank you for the invitation.